0: Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. And uh, we continue our run of legendary venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Today, my buddy, Matthew Cowan of Next47. And Matthew and I have known each other for uh, longer than I would probably like to admit. I met him over 20 years ago when he was a rock star at Intel Capital. And uh, since then, he's been both an investor and an entrepreneur. Before Next47, Matthew was the CEO and co-founder of Breezeworks, a mobile CRM platform for, for uh, small businesses. And over his investing career, he's invested in a lot of category queen, category king companies like Jasper Wireless, Plum Organics, Proofpoint, Epinions, and many, many more. On this episode, we have a very wide-ranging conversation uh, about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and a whole lot more. Um, I have loved knowing and working off and on with Matthew for a long time. He's a super smart guy, and uh, I think you're going to love this one. I Also, um, if you're a regular listener, thank you so much for uh, hanging out. I really do appreciate it. You're why we do this. And if by chance you're a casual listener or this is your first time, um, maybe a couple things you should know. First of all, we've been voted the number one dialogue podcast and a dialogue is very different from an interview. Interviews, by definition, are inauthentic because what you and I experience in an interview is normally a highly media-trained guest with uh, key talking points and a professional journalist with a pre-configured narrative. And if you start to listen to your typical interview, what you'll notice is a collision between talking points from the guest and the narrative the host wants to drive. And of course, interviews get edited, so somebody decides what you hear and what you don't hear. Well, I think all that's bullshit. I think real conversations make a real difference. And I also think real conversations can make the world a different place. And so what you experience on Follow Your Different is a real, unedited conversation. And um, look, we have a lot of conversations about business, entrepreneurship, venture capital, Uh, marketing and the like. And I know that you're a 360 degree person. So from time to time we have leading authors on. Um, We have uh, everybody from pastors to porn stars and everything in between to keep things well different. And so if this is your first time, strap yourself in. Uh, It's a conversation that you're uh, not normally used to hearing, particularly in any kind of a business context. We're sponsored by my good friends at NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to learn about the world's number one cloud ERP system. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. And on October 20th and 21st in uh, America and 21st and 22nd in Europe and Asia, they are having their annual conference dot com. .conf. Check out C-O-N-F dot Splunk dot com for more information. This is the, where, where the world's leading data leaders get together and hang out and share some legendary ideas. Visit comp.splunk.com. Now, as Joey Ramon said, hey-ho, let's go. There's a million things on my mind, but I'm curious what's on your mind.
1: You know, I, I I think to a large extent, really reflecting on uh, how the COVID uh, phenomenon is is changing the landscape of business and everything that that we do. I think in, in in some ways, it's accelerating a lot of trends that were already in motion. And one thought experiment I I often do is to reflect on you know what if COVID happened twenty years ago uh, versus today. I think the world economy would be. Uh, certainly the U.S. economy uh, at a complete halt uh, compared to where we are. You know, I think the the great news is we've developed so many tools, uh, kind of like the platform we're using right now, where we can have an incredible conversation uh, without being in the same room at the same time. And that's very powerful. Um, So I'm trying to reflect on, you know, how does the landscape, the business environment change uh, permanently as as a consequence of uh, the acceleration that I think COVID has contributed Uh, And how do we navigate with respect to, you know, our existing businesses to to thrive in that new environment? And also, how do we think about investment strategies, you know, uh, in anticipation of uh, these accelerated changes?
0: I love that you started there because that's where I kind of hoped you might go. And so as somebody who makes their living projecting out, you tell me, 10 years into the future, certainly five years into the future and beyond, how do you assess the present, particularly in the context of what is the future going to look like 5, 10, 15 years out?
1: Tough question, clearly, uh, but let's try to tease it out into to, to different pieces. I, I think one sort of penultimate question with respect to opportunities you might be looking at at this moment in time is, can businesses scale and grow uh, in the current economic environment? So if you think about businesses like you know food delivery, home food delivery, and you know anything that's E-commerce or uh, virtual-related, you know, you see explosion. Um, one of our companies is it's called Bizabo, and they host. Uh, actually, this is a great story. So, Bizabo is a platform that uh, has event management software. So, if you're running a conference and you've got, you know, 500 people, 2,000 people coming to an event, you need a platform. The platform that does ticketing, the platform that has an app on your mobile phone that gives you the agenda, um, all of those things in a sort of seamless, turnkey fashion. You know, when COVID hit. We thought Bizabo was going to be our hardest-hit portfolio company. I mean, who's going to have events in, in the COVID environment, right? I mean, it's fair to say 999 or perhaps 100% of all these events uh, are, were canceled. And so, you know, the company prepared for retrenchment and, and cutback uh, expense, and, uh, you know, was really preparing for a very long and, and difficult time. Uh, and then something really amazing happened, and, and the amazing thing that happened is all of their customers said, look, I know we can't do these events in person, we still have to do these events. These are mission critical for our customer relationships uh, and our forward progress. So we need you to help us figure out how to do events in a virtual construct. And so very quickly, Bizabo figured out a way to deliver you know, near-term an experience that satisfies you know, the key market requirements. And they just closed their best quarter ever by a factor of 2x. So you go from a company that you know I think was at a questionable future uh, in this current environment to one that is uh, thriving ahead of its original uh, expectations. So, you know, not every story goes like that, but I, I think it's amazing. Another part to your question is is really thinking about what is your time horizon with respect to when you're going to step on the gas from a, a sales and marketing uh, perspective. And uh, on, the, on that side of the equation, you know, it's, it's a great time for investors to think about things that are earlier stage. This is a good time to invest in a team of engineers, lock them in, you know, a warehouse for, you know, three years and, and come out with something beautiful on the other end because there's less penalty for that missed time. And so I think the sort of stage of focus is is, is really critical. I think one other thing that I'd also highlight, Christopher, is that you know, even before COVID, uh, we were going through a pretty significant change uh, in, in the tech community and in the investment community. Uh, a lot of people will talk about the, the soft bank effect, uh, and and I think it's important. Overall, you know, if you look at the arc of venture in the last you know 25 years, there's this pendulum that swings back and forth. You know, and I, and one end of the pendulum I think is can be characterized as growth at any cost. You know, what is you know all that matters? The only metric that matters is you know how do you get to 500 million? How do you get to a billion dollars of revenue? With this sort of you know deep held belief that it, once you do that everything else will work out, and that's really what I think the SoftBank investment style represented. And you know their whole thesis was if they anoint category leader with a five hundred million dollar check, by definition they will become the category leader. And uh, you know it's an interesting strategy. It works perhaps in, in certain environments, but you know I think we started to see the wheels coming off that degree of aggressiveness even before COVID hit. Uh, we work and other things are, you know, uh, examples of the the canary in the, in the coal mine, and COVID just contributed to that. And I think the pendulum swings very far in the other direction, which is towards positive unit economics. You know, it's okay to lose a lot of money building a company; you have to. But if your unit economics have no prayer of ever being positive, the only metric you're going to do is figure out how fast you can burn cash.
0: So this one, I think, is a very interesting one. It's a subtlety that has dramatic impact that maybe doesn't get talked about enough, which is. If we're losing money because we're investing, quote-unquote, ahead of the curve on infrastructure and capability, on marketing and customer acquisition, on uh, hiring, on depending on the type of business, if we need physical assets and we need some physical capabilities in certain parts of the, the world or the globe, things along those lines, that's one sort of investment. The investment that you're talking about on unit economics is... We're gonna sell something that costs us a dollar for ninety cents and try to make it up on volume. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's the old old story of the guy that, you know, sells melons at the market and he buys the melons for, you know, uh ten dollars and, and sells them for five. And the guy says, Well, how are you gonna make money? He says, Well, next week I'm gonna sell more melons.
0: Which is just further proof that you always gotta pay special attention to your melons.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's really critical. You know, there are examples of you know, it, to me, it's it's your projected unit economics, not your current unit economics. So, uh, you know, if you're building a hardware product, for example, and you have a, a unit run of you know, a hundred thousand units, you're going to spend a lot more uh, per unit than if you're building fifty million of them by definition. So, there's lots of examples of companies that have terrible unit economics in the beginning, but you can model out and have a clear line of sight to how you're going to be optimized supply chain, drive unit costs down, and get to positive unit economics. But when you think of businesses uh, like in the ride-sharing market, uh, everyone's favorite example, you know, unit economics are terrible, obviously. And even at billions of dollars of scale uh, in gross revenue, they're still terrible.
0: I've heard a lot that says that this recession is going to defund... The, the the companies that their unit economics, their oper- their their business and operating margins have been funded by VCs, and therefore they've delayed the ability to have to have an economic model that makes sense. Even some of these companies at massive scale, that that now is a an approach to scaling a business that is gone. But I it, it, is it really? I'd be curious as to your reaction.
1: Um. You know, I, I, I used the example before of thinking of the pendulum swinging back and forth. You know, I, I think it's always in motion in venture, um, and, and that sort of pattern of shifting back and forth will, in my opinion, can continue. So I think we're at a moment now of, you know, more extreme recession, uh, more extreme COVID, where the pendulum is very far on the unit economic side. So if you were a company that had unit economics like Uber, and you were raising late stage venture capital or going public right now. You know, I think that would be a much tougher value proposition. Certainly, you would get less capital, and you would get a less attractive valuation. That doesn't mean somebody out there wouldn't write a check, um, but I think it creates a lot of pressure. Um, and I, I saw a lot of companies and markets uh, adjacent to ride ride sharing, and you know, their whole presentations are about unit economics. Uh, and this was a year ago, so this was before COVID uh, and before the, the recession. But um, you know, people were already focused on okay, at scale show us the story of how the unit economics get fixed Um, and if that question can't be answered now the question may have risks inherent in it and that's okay but if there's no answer to the question like there's no way anybody can ever see that happening then i think those companies aren't going to be able to raise capital
0: yeah that, that that makes sense to me and it sort of is along the lines of there's a right way and a wrong way to lose money And um, the right way to lose money is investing in things that hopefully pay off over time. The wrong way to lose money is in unit economics that are never going to get fixed.
1: Yeah, well, and and those stories just become the uh, greater fool theory, right? Which is, how do I just get this to the next level and get someone else to buy it? Public market investors, private equity firms, uh, anything along those lines. Um, but in this this segment of the market, you know, I think you saw uh, Uber just acquired Postmates. Um, I think we're in the beginning of what's going to be an incredible wave of, of continued uh, consolidation. Uh, we'll probably see that with the scooter companies um, uh, as well. Ride sharing companies have to figure out how to create, you know, improve utilization. The way that these businesses can succeed is delivery density and utilization. And so, for them to figure out a way to, you know, keep the cars full. Uh, if there are passengers, it needs to be food packages or, or other things. You know, the, the great news is there's ever increasing demand, not just for food, but pretty much everything on the planet to, to be delivered. And so, I think that creates good opportunities. And you know, if you can create delivery density where a single driver can deliver, you know, many things in an efficient route, you can become very profitable. You know, the problem with ride sharing is, you know, you got point A to point B, one person, uh, and you're and you're capped, and a lot of those rides are, are very short, so that makes the unit economics, you know, I think impossible.
0: It's fascinating that we're talking about this. Just a couple of data points that have been swizzling around my head of late. I'm sure you saw this, but Instacart recently raised $225 million out of market cap just a hair under $14 billion. So those are staggering. But get this I had to read this three times. They are hiring 300,000. 300,000 new people this year and are projecting a potential 250,000 more next year.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so what you're seeing there in very bold terms is this accelerated transition to, you know, home delivery uh, away from physical retail. I mean, the Amazon effect was already closing retail as we know it, right? I mean, we, you can walk around. Any downtown stretch, uh, whether it's downtown San Francisco, pick any mall in America, and you look the, would have, prior to COVID, you would probably see you know twenty five percent of the storefront shut down or in some state of transition, and so th- this trend was was already going forward, and I, th- I think COVID just you know pours gasoline uh, on the fire. So all of those bodies and headcount you're talking about are representative of coming directly out of the physical retail channel.
0: But have we ever had in it to your point on on scale, Matthew? I would love a smart business historian to tell us, like, in terms of hiring people, have we ever seen companies that hire what, what three, four, five, 550,000 people that's half a billion, a half a million people, not a billion in two years-ish. I mean, how many companies have ever scaled employees like this before? I, I, I can't think of any. Uh, it, it it's
1: staggering. I mean, you could reflect on it on a company specific basis. You could also reflect on it on it as a uh, as a shift. You know, from kind of one industry segment to another. Like if you were to take offline to online uh, and look at the pace of you know Amazon's growth and, and all the other stores shutting down, and that may be back in more in more one company. Uh, but the short answer to your question is, I can't think of uh, another example that's a, it's that's a parallel to this. It, it's staggering, um, and I, I really do think that's a consequence of a trend that was already in motion in a powerful way. Um, and, you know, I think that the physical disruption and change that COVID introduces overnight is is unprecedented. I mean, I, there, you probably have to go back to periods of time like World War II, honestly, to have any parallel. Uh, and you and I weren't around then, so it's, it's hard to exactly relate. But uh, I, I can't think of anything in our lifetimes that uh, approximates this in any way. People talk about 9-11. 9-11 was very disruptive, but it was more or less at a single moment in time from which we recovered. And there was, you know, the week it happened. I think we all stepped back and said, "Gee, I don't know if life's ever going to be the same as we know it." But gradually, week by week by week, you know, I, I think the only enduring consequence really was uh, we had to take our shoes off in the airport for a while. But you know, we we, we got back. Whereas, you know, the COVID situation is not only is it remain uh, a problem; uh, it's actually getting a lot worse. So I, I think it really is a kind of disruption equivalent to a, a world global world war uh, is is really the only kind of parallel we can think about. And Reflect on what the U.S. did from a you know industrial capacity perspective. I remember the stats about you know we're going to make x number of you know tens of thousands of planes uh, by year end, and we ended up doing three x uh, what the most optimistic forecast was. Uh, it's those kinds of you know massive shifts.
0: Well, and I think to your point, uh, and, and look, I get criticized sometimes for being overly biased, but I don't give a shit uh, biased towards entrepreneurship and innovation, but. Um, if we've learned anything, and we, I think we've learned a lot of things in the last few months, but one of them we've learned is the role of our entrepreneurs um, and our ability to innovate rapidly matters more now than ever before. Yes,
1: I, 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 absolutely. And, and focusing on on the right data at the right time. And I think those those decisions are, are critical for, you know, all companies and the ones at greater scale, I think, are even more important.
0: The other thing, you know, you said something important about focusing in on the data. And so I'm curious how you think maybe people's relationship has or hasn't changed with the need to both acquire and consume data.
1: It's always a challenge because there's ever-increasing amount of data that's exponentially created. And the question is, how do you reliably and efficiently focus on the small number of data points that, that drive your key decisions? Um, and I think there's you know different facets of data. You know, if you're a, a customer facing company, you want to look at the funnel data, customer acquisition costs. You know, all all the metrics associated with, with your underlying business. And I think it's it's identifying what the key data drivers are to your decision making, and figuring out how to way to continually automate and create alerts around it. You know, I think the explosion in the in the log space is interesting. That's like data about you know availability of your websites or, or platforms. And if you're running uh, a business where transactions are consummated online. You know, if you have any sort of degradation in service uh, or quality, you know that hits you directly in terms of your revenue capacity. And so, being able to quickly identify those things and that's really one area I think where Amazon was able to shine. I mean, you would go there and the site always worked; it was always very fast and flawless uh, compared to other experiences. And they way overbuilt, you know, their capacity to deliver on that consumer promise. But it created a brand identity to the end customer of enormous trust that I think was a key ingredient to um, Amazon's success. And of course, Amazon took on that extra capacity and created another trillion-dollar business in AWS. So uh, it was a win-win for them uh, all around. But I I think that sort of real-time data and building data analytics, data generation into all applications and all facets of your business execution uh, are essential. You know, you can see that when you have complete some consumer experience on a website, it's like, hey, click here for feedback. You know, that's another opportunity for data. So you don't want to overwhelm the user, but you want to figure out qualitative and connotative ways to collect all that data in real time so that you you can make course corrections in your business.
0: I love all that. The other thing I I think you hear Jeff Bezos being criticized and Amazon being criticized for this, that, and the other, and maybe some of it's fair, maybe it's not, but here's the thing I don't hear enough about. When you think about how a company like that has scaled both on the consumer side and on the AWS side and what the, what in the old systems management world we used to call high availability, Yeah. what the high availability of Amazon has meant. It has meant on one hand, we all get our groceries and, and toilet paper and, and essential products delivered to us. And on the other hand, it means that our uh, entertainment gets delivered to us. Netflix doesn't go down and Amazon prime videos are available and yeah. we can download our Kindle book. So, and to your point, I mean, how many thousands of companies that are digital native companies are now sitting on AWS who've also experienced massive uh, increase in scale. And so, I don't know, I'm beginning to think that never in the history of business have we seen a company scale to a a situation or a crisis the way we're watching Amazon scale today.
1: Uh, I I agree. I mean, the thing that people legitimately detest most about Amazon, frankly, uh, is their excellent success. That's the thing that, that people are upset <laughs> about. I mean, they have succeeded across the board. I mean, to think that in this moment in time, Google and Microsoft would be playing catch-up to Amazon in cloud infrastructure. I mean, if you said that to anybody 10 years ago, they would have thought you were out of your mind. Uh, and, and that's the reality we, we live in. I think the enormous success of, of Amazon you know, can be compared to, to Microsoft. Uh, and, and Apple, in terms of you know the power that those companies generate in their, in their ecosystems, and it, it is it is alarming. And I think it is a good opportunity for consumers and other providers to think about you know how do we live, how do we create choice and um, competition? Because if Amazon is literally the only provider for us to get things delivered to our home in the future, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous world to live in. And so, as as much as I uh, have infinite admiration and respect for Amazon and spend a lot of money with Amazon personally, uh, I also think it's it's important for us to look for opportunities to create um, other players in this ecosystem, to create competition uh, and choice. And you know, I think it's also really important to think about brand owners. You know, if if you owned and created a brand that consumers want, and you only have the opportunity to sell through Amazon, well, Amazon's going to take a large chunk, uh, if not all of your margin. And so what are other ways that brand owners can create a path to own direct relationships with their end customers? Um, And, you know, we've made investments kind of consistent with that thesis. Uh, One company is called Bring uh, in Israel, B-R-I-N-G-G. Bring, got it. Yeah, and they provide delivery orchestration software. So if you sell a product, it could be food, it could be roadside assistance, and you need to get it to a customer in that same day, Bring is your software ecosystem to, to provide that. And it's really the, the alternate, you know, the, they really form a coalition with many other companies to create an alternative to, to the Amazon world. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I just want to emphasize, again, the deep respect I have for everything that Amazon has achieved. But I think it's incumbent on us to ensure that there are other competitive solutions available uh, for end customer results.
0: Well, the interesting thing about Amazon that uh, you don't I don't think hear very much about is we in the United States, to the best of my knowledge, have rarely experienced a company that dominates B2C and B2B and is so well positioned in both mega spaces going forward at the same time. And it it reminds me a little bit. We had uh, Jeffrey Kane on a while ago, and he's a reporter who's incredibly smart, has lived in Asia for years. Uh, and he wrote a book recently uh, that just came out called Samsung Rising, and it's a deep insight into Korea, Samsung, and and to some degree a broader perspective on on things in Asia. But when 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 you hear him talk about Samsung in Korea, you know things I didn't realize there are people there who call it the Republic of Samsung. They own schools. You can take your prepaid uh, meal or your pre-made meal and put it in your Samsung uh, microwave and heat it up and make coffee with your Samsung coffee maker and send your kids to a Samsung school and, 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 and it's very big brothery. And so are you concerned that's where we're going with Amazon? Yes and no. I
1: I think you have to, your comment about Samsung is spot on, but you have to put that in context, a little bit of business culture, both in Japan and in Korea, these chai bowls in Korea or Koretsu's in Japan have, you know, taken uh, enormous hold of these economies you know, really post-World War II uh, or post-Korean War, respectively. And th- they've always had that style of you know, massive uh, conglomerates uh, with all of these different businesses. So Samsung is not unique from, from that perspective. They're just the most visible um, and successful today. Um, but you know, interestingly enough, you know, Japan and Korea, uh, and frankly, Germany, too, post-World War II and Korean War, had incredible entrepreneurial uh, giants that rose uh, from those world wars. And then after that, there really wasn't a lot of opportunity for new entrepreneurs to emerge. So all new companies sort of subsequent to that, you know, initial 10-year period of great invention post, post the wars um, only grew up within those conglomerates or entities. They really, I mean, uh, SoftBank we've been talking a lot about, but, you know, they stand tall as one of the sort of major new companies that came out of Korea Japan, you know, in, in more recent history. And recent history being 20 years, not 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's remarkable from that perspective. But I want to go back from something else you said about the incredible nature of Amazon being so successful both in the B2B world and the consumer world. I, I, I really do think it's unprecedented. And uh, Microsoft would have been my, my other example. And you know, what's amazing about Microsoft is you know, Microsoft fundamentally lost the post-PC era, right? They lost in the tablets. They most notably lost the operating system monopoly um, in, the, in the mobile world. And uh, for them to be able to pivot uh, to the B2B world and emerge as, you know, a trillion dollar company and maybe one of the most valuable three companies on planet Earth, uh, having lost uh, a trillion dollar market uh, is equally extraordinary. It deserves uh, incredible.
0: Insane, right? Yeah. (laughs) Incredible. Satya Nadella. Unbelievable. If you had said, you know, I don't know, pick pick midway through the bomber era. If you'd said, hey, listen, Microsoft is going to get seriously focused on the enterprise and is going to execute incredibly in the next giant platform, the cloud, and is going to become a trillion dollar, one of a very few trillion dollar companies on planet earth. You would have said, Hey, I don't know what you're smoking, man, but pass me some.
1: Yeah, no, I I, look, I mean, in the final stages of, you know, Bomber was talking about, you know, the next windows. And I, uh, there was one pivotal, I, you know, there's this venture event that, that Microsoft used to host and, uh, Bomber would come down and, uh, host us in Mountain View or whatever it was and give us his talk and he gets up there and uh, he, he he says, look, you know, we totally effed up and, and you know, Windows Mobile was a disaster and we're doing a complete reboot rebuilding the whole thing and uh, someone says, well, what, what's what's the new product going to be called? And Bomber smiles and says, you know, Windows 10 or whatever it was and uh, Stuart also gets up and he says, you know, Steve, I, I'm just curious if it's a complete reboot and you acknowledge you screwed up, shouldn't it be called something other than Windows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole you know you could just see that you know bomber turn red and get very angry but uh you know it was the key question um and it cut right through you know everything that uh, was being proposed
0: it really uh it's been a stunning comeback and and to your point the fact that they doubled down and and made it to the cloud and uh yeah i think it's going to be considered one of the best most impressive turnarounds of all time
1: yeah i mean it's it's uh I hesitate to call it a turnaround because it, 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 it's not like, I mean, they were never in dire straits. You know, you didn't see Microsoft doing massive layoffs or whatever else, but, you know, it's a turnaround of sorts um, in the sense that, that they pivoted, you know, dramatically to, you know, one of their uh, two market segments they occupied. Uh, but thinking of questions that I remember most over the years of different events I attended, the, the other killer question is, uh, I think it was an Allen Company event or something, and uh, Reed Hastings was presenting, and it was right around the time that Netflix was, you know, Getting a lot of traction to you know really put Blockbuster out of business, and you know at that time the entire business of Netflix was sending DVDs in the mail. That's all they did, and and someone got up there and said, you know, I, Reed, you're amazing, and you've obviously shined a bright light on why Blockbuster makes no sense, and your model's much better. But, you know, isn't it obvious that all movies are going to be streamed in the future, and that no one's going to screw around with DVDs or anything else? So I mean, how are you building a future company? And Reed, you know, obviously. Had this answer and given it before, but he, he looks up and says, well, you, you notice we didn't name the company DVD in an envelope, did we?
0: <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> and, 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 and,
1: and it could be more prophetic. And I, and I, you know, while I think Reed legitimately had the vision for what Netflix was to become in mind all along. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, his, I I think it significantly exceeded even his own expectations. I mean, that Netflix has become the most dominant force in uh, entertainment from a production of content perspective uh, is mesmerizing, absolutely mesmerizing.
0: It it is pretty incredible that the future of Hollywood lives in Los Gatos, California.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and back to your question of data, you know, one of the things that Netflix, I, I think, is perfected is figuring out from all the data what content to produce. Um, so that they're not taking big risks, you know. They know that there's a segment of their user base that loves this kind of show, um, and they can even test. They can run little previews and see who clicks on what. You know, this is a kind of you know real life market testing and data that, that never existed before. And you know, creating movies is not radically different than venture capital, right? I mean, you have to build something uh, and then sell it and, and hope it succeeds. You know, in venture capital, you've got to build a technology product before you know if it succeeds. The big challenge in Hollywood has been that production costs have always been so high. That, that number might be 100 million. You have to spend, uh, and this is why we, you know, end up with things like Pir- Pirates of the Caribbean Part 50 um, because it's a known brand, and they know that their downside's protected. You know, in the worst case, they they know they're going to recover 110 percent of their capital. Uh, whereas if they create, you know, a whole new property from scratch, you know, there's a 50 percent chance it's a zero. And so that sort of risk mitigation, but a lot of things have changed. I think the, the content production costs have come down is the world has shifted more towards television as a medium versus film production costs go down and the ability to use data analytics to figure out, you know, what to create again, data costs go down or production costs go down or more targeted. So uh, it's a pretty radical transformation. And I think a way that highlights what makes tech and Silicon Valley unique in this world. Um, and it uh, ties right back to your request, earlier question on data.
0: Amen. Hallelujah, brother. You know, we've been talking about this a lot. We talked about it a little bit in Play Bigger, and uh, Eddie Yoon and I have been working on it. Um, We did a bunch of research that we just recently published in the HBR to try to connect the existence of this ability, we call it the data flywheel, to your ability to become the category-dominating, category-designing company. And we think now you can prove... Uh, there's a straight line between becoming a category queen and having a data flywheel. And in the case of Netflix, I have read now give me a little bit of leeway here because I you know, consume a lot of alcoholic beverages. But <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, Matthew, what I've read is um, the historical numbers in the entertainment business at the big studios are roughly a 30 percent hit rate. And that Netflix essentially using their data flywheel, that is to say, they know if we're going to like it before they launch it, before they even create it, is roughly the inverse of that. So roughly 70% of what they create works economically. So they've inverted the model. If I remember, if I remember the, um, the, the statistics correctly.
1: That, that's completely directionally consistent with with my understanding as well. I mean, I, it, it should be noted that, you know, Netflix is a membership-based model versus a one-off content consumption model, uh, which does have uh, different implications. Um, but yes, I think it's an incredible testament to, to the power of data and, and transforming uh, how and what content is created.
0: Do you think, sp- speaking of that subscription model, I mean, it, it seems to me that Almost every new business I hear of is a subscription service-based model and that everything that was a product is being turned into a service and that every product that was a physical product is become, is turning into a data product. And then to quote Joe Pine, who wrote The Experience Economy, if it can be digitized, it can be customized. So here's a recent, here's a recent example. Uh, I read a story that said that BMW is now planning to offer all of the in-car shit, whether it's nav or entertainment or even the ability to have a seat warmer, things along those lines, as a subscription service that you will pay for on an ongoing basis after you buy the car and because it's a digitally delivered subscription service you can tailor it to your own desires and so forth so it's sort of a living embodiment of what i think joe pines talking about here and so i'm with all that said i'm curious how you think about this evolution from a uh, product to service to service that's a digital service that then turns into a one time per- from a one time purchase into an ongoing subscription
1: Yeah, I I think what you describe is is absolutely uh, a trend, but I don't think uh, it's fair, from my perspective, to say one size fits all. You know, I I think there are many examples where you legitimately can create a service uh, from a product. And I think, to me, the key part of creating a service is where there's a legitimate ongoing need for something new and something like connectivity. So in the car example you just mentioned, one of the things you're paying for is wireless connectivity. You know, that's what sort of breaks the seal from a consumer perspective of, I'm willing to pay for this on an ongoing basis. But if there's, you know, and, and it's like Netflix or, you know, Spotify, right? You're constantly consuming something new. Uh, and therefore, as a customer, you're, you're really conditioned to, to the, the notion of kind of paying for that. You know, another counter example I would give is uh, all these smart home light switches. You know, I buy a light switch and I want to control it with my Wi-Fi, but I'm not willing to pay a subscription for that as a customer. You know, that, to me, doesn't have a, a newness factor that um, makes me comfortable, and I'm willing to spend a much higher price not to have subscription because I don't want to have 400 subscriptions that I manage uh, in, my, my, in my daily life. Um, so, while I do think a substantial amount of products and services or things that used to be products will e- evolve into services, um, I think the critical factor is that it provides something new on an ongoing basis. From a content consumption or a connectivity perspective, and I, I don't think that there's an opportunity to turn every product into a service. You know, I'm not going to buy. Uh, here's another example: I just bought a GoPro. GoPro is a great product, right? And, and they're pushing hard that I should subscribe to their cloud photo service. I'm never doing it. I don't want to pay GoPro and Apple and Google to store my stuff in the cloud. I've already paying for that. Um, so I, I think it's a great attempt on their part, but I'm skeptical long term as to whether or not that's going to be a major source of revenue.
0: So that's fascinating. Did you say content? consumption and connectivity at the, the beginning of, of that? Yeah. So sort of uh, drill into those, why those three matter in your mind.
1: Well, I, you know, if, if I'm paying for something for which there is ongoing cost, like uh, cars, the smart cars that you talk about with BMW or Tesla provides, they have built-in SIM cards, right? Their own cellular connection. That's an ongoing cost. So I recognize as a consumer that I need to pay for that if I want, you know, real-time traffic information and streaming music piped into my car. So, uh, and so that's what I mean from connectivity perspective. From a content perspective, I'm excited to pay for a Netflix subscription every month because there's something new that I consume. Um, but you know, the example of you know, the white switch, there's nothing new I'm consuming to turn the switch on and off. And I'm already paying for connectivity to my home. So I don't want to pay a subscription for that. I don't think I would need to or that I should have to. Um, so I think it has to be something new or something that represents a true and legitimate ongoing cost. Uh, or something that's fundamental
0: to the experience of the product. Fascinating. So um, with all that said, I want to go back to bring for a second. How do you, what's the lens that you use, Matthew, uh, to say this new thing that we're looking at investing in has a meaningful shot of being a standalone category versus what you just just described, which is, you know, let's say I came to you and was pitching you a uh, light switch As a service cloud management startup, you might argue, hey, look, I don't think people are going to have one thing for their light switch and another thing for their security system and another thing for their dryer and another thing for their washer and another thing for their bed warmer or cooler (laughs) or, you know, all the things in our home that ultimately may may very well come together to create a quote unquote smart home, right? So, so in that scenario, you can argue that there's going to be a unifying interface and all those products will fit into it and we'll have one app to control them all All right you can take that position or in the case of a bring you're taking a position that says well you know there are going to be some business owners that are going to want to plug into an infrastructure like amazon pay them you know their 30 or 40 percent or whatever the charge is to be on their platform so that they can sell your stuff and or deliver your stuff or uh, the world needs a third party independent system, like in this case, a bring where I as a business owner can decide to use the bring infrastructure to as my delivery platform and essentially have my own and pay bring, I assume, a service as opposed to uh, a giant chunk of my business. Is that is that how this is sort of playing out?
1: Yeah, I I think that's fair at a a high level. You know, Bring is a a B2B product, so it's different than sort of these consumer subscription services we're talking about. But um, it is the infrastructure that, you know, say anybody else would need to acquire in order to provide an Amazon-like experience to to the end user. And and in the consumer world, if you sell into the consumer world, uh, I don't think people talk enough about the critical importance of owning your customer relationships. Owning your customer relationships ultimately is the arbiter of who captures the profit margin. And so, you know, if you're Nike, but all 100% of your products are sold by Amazon, that means Amazon can feature New Balance or Under Armour or or somebody else to your detriment, and there's nothing you can do about it, fundamentally. And it all gets to, you know, when you go to the web and you want to buy and interact with a product, do you go to Amazon or do you go directly to that product's website? And it's not just products, and services, too. The same parallel exists if you are McDonald's, you know, if you want to have McDonald's food delivered to your home, do you go to McDonald's.com or do you go to DoorDash? And that's critical because I, I submit, you know, that's what's going to drive profitability long term. And if we end up in a world where DoorDash and Amazon own the customers, they're going to own the profits, uh, and everybody else is going to be commoditized. And it's going to be, you know, not just similar to what we had in the PC industry, where Intel and Microsoft consumed, you know, ninety-five percent of the profits, uh, and all the OEMs got the fought, fought over the remaining five percent. And that's, I think, really, really critical uh, to understand. And I think it's important. And brand owners, I think, are waking up to this. They know that they need to own their customer relationship. They know that their long-term keys to their long-term success is selling product directly to those customers, being able to message directly to those customers, and not having that control taken away. And I I, I think it's understood, but I don't think people are embracing the urgency associated with this as much as they need to. And when you own your customer relationship, that doesn't mean you can't also sell through Amazon. But if Amazon controls your access to all your customers, your profit margins are going away. Simple as that.
0: Amen. Hallelujah. And this is something that I think those of us, that I'm new to the party in the quote unquote content space. And I think almost everybody's in the content space in one way or another today. Yep. This is the shocking reality. If you're, if you're an author, if you're a podcaster, if you're a media creator, well, guess what? To your point, uh, Amazon knows who's buying niche down and play bigger. I, I, I don't. Uh, Apple knows who's downloading my podcasts. I, I, I don't. And it is a strategic disadvantage because you can't build your own flywheel. And to your point, I think those of us in the content space who've realized the people who own the pipes have a tremendous amount of control. We have to do things to go around the pipes to begin to, to 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 create a direct relationship, and that's why you see an explosion of all these online communities and special you know services and quote unquote mastermind groups, and uh, you know you see uh, people like uh, Gina Bianchini at, at 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 Mighty Networks trying to create standalone social networks for people, and all these things because to your point. It's a rude awakening when you realize that um, somebody else owns the pipe to your customers and they own that data about what your customers is do, are doing.
1: No, it's, a, it's exactly right, Christopher. And it, it ties to the ex- example of Netflix. You know, they, they get the data, they know what content to produce. Amazon gets the data on what you bought, so they know what products to produce. But the individual produ- producers of products don't get that data. Um, and, and so that leads to uh, a potential, you know, that gap only widening uh, o- over time. This also reminds me. I, I wrote an article recently uh, about you know the end of the unicorn and, and the rise of the camel. You know, the unicorn was this you know model I think that represented the, the the SoftBank era of grow at any cost, and you know the definition of success was getting to a billion dollar valuation for a venture backed company. That means you succeeded. Um, which is an interesting perspective, right? Valuation should, mean, is the, should not be the determination of success. It should be did you build you know underlying business that has long-term profit potential. And my comment about the camel, which is not a term I coined, somebody else coined it, but uh, I jumped all over it because moving into this era of profitable unit economics and, and a dark period in COVID, I was saying, you know, companies for long-term success need to be camels. They need to be able to go a long time in the desert without water uh, and come out the other end uh, and succeed. Um, and I thought that was tremendous. I, I also heard um of a a person out there that had been propagating that the the correct animal should be a zebra and this this ties with what we're just talking about with amazon and customer ownership because the zebra has all the the characteristics of of a camel but also the notion that companies should be part of a collective and not try to be monopolies and everyone should succeed and be part of this sort of new socialistic world um, which you know on the surface is is appealing in terms of yeah i like the notion of all companies helping each other but um, at the same time, uh, I also think that the business world is driven by, you know, unapologetic capitalism. Uh, and I embrace that, and I'm good with that. And so I think the trick is to, you know, how do we embrace the, the tenets of capitalism to succeed in getting, to a, getting us to a better world order? So when we think about the world of Amazon, I don't want to think about zebras and, and social ideas. I want to think about who are competitors like bring uh, that we can back that will also be unabashed capitalists but help to succeed in creating a world order that's better for the end customer um, and creates more tenets of capitalism hmm.
0: very interesting thinking And anything else about a, a camel you want me to know as, as distinct from a z as, as distinct from a unicorn
1: yeah i i think it's really about unit economics uh planning for for building that business uh and making sure you can achieve the the, r- the right milestones it's never losing sight of the underlying business you're building um I think the Unicorn model was focused on access to capital, um, getting big fast uh and solving the problem on the other side, uh, which, you know, maybe has worked for some uh and failed for 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 many others. But but the camel is, is recognizing that the building a business is a marathon. And you need to build your company with that mindset uh from from the beginning. Uh and that doesn't mean there are periods where that camel shouldn't be running like hell uh and sprinting. Uh it should be. Um and I know that's an awkward image, but uh the camel needs to be Hold on tight. <laughs> A camel needs to be able to sprint, but on the other side of it, you know, it needs to be able to walk for two hundred miles without water. Um and that duality I think is is critical for building successful businesses in these times.
0: The other interesting about that flipping metaphor, of course, that is obvious but probably needs to be said is unicorns are fantastical creatures that don't exist. <laughs> <Yes>. they fantasies. <laughs> that's right. And camels are real fucking things. I've seen them. (laughs) Uh,
1: That's a a, a great point. uh, And and, and exactly the point.
0: (laughs) Matthew, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Um,
1: I I just want to end with, you know, this is a hard time for, for, for a lot of people, but I also think it's uh, a time with enormous opportunity uh, and and enormous hope. Uh, Some of the best companies in in the history uh, of technology and, and potentially the world, were created in, in difficult times. You know, necessity is the mother of all invention, and your ability to attract an amazing team and base of talent right now is has is, is probably never been greater. Um, and so I think it's important for us, you know, in the face of, of all these challenges to, to not lose sight of that um, and to try to rotate uh, towards, you know, the, the, this uh, breadth of opportunity um, and how we can refocus to capitalize it.
0: You know, that, that that's so interesting. Well, And it's, it's of course, optimistic. And it's interesting to me that anyone who's an entrepreneur, anyone who that I know, I just don't. Let me say it this way. Anyone that has a background like remotely like yours. That's pessimistic. I don't know how they're successful, <laughs> right? There sort of has to be a fundamental belief in the future and in humanity and in our ability to make the world a different place to do this kind of work. Yes. I,
1: I think that's completely true, Christopher, but one might add the filter of time horizon uh, to the equation. So you be an yeah, yes. extraordinary pessimist about what the world's going to achieve in the next, you know, 18 months. Uh, and at the same time, embrace the greatest breadth of optimism about what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years. And, and I think that's a lot about. The core of being a venture capitalist is optimism in uh, a timeline that's compatible.
0: So maybe let me, uh, if I could just steal a little bit more time. Um, you know, you mentioned building a company today. And of course, history teaches us that uh, it is possible to build legendary companies in, in very challenging downturns and, and, and challenging times overall. If you accept this notion that distant is a distant memory, or will be a distant memory. In other words, we can all work from wherever we want. And if you accept that, somewhere between this is what I've been hearing. I'd be curious what you're hearing. Somewhere between between a quarter to fifty percent of knowledge workers aren't going back to work. Is that consistent with what you're hearing?
1: I, I've certainly heard the prediction. Yes, I've heard that prediction. I don't know if it's true or not, but I certainly have heard that. Yeah,
0: and and look, the interesting thing about that, uh, fascinatingly, Gartner Group came out about a year ago and said that we're uh, a we're about to hit the billion number of knowledge workers on the planet. So there's just a hair under 8 billion of us. And according to Gartner, some, at some point this year, uh, 2020, uh, we hit a billion knowledge workers. So if the prognosticators are right, that means somewhere between 250 million and 500 million people that used to go to offices don't go anymore. So if you accept that, and look, like you you say, I don't know either, but if you accept that that might be the case, here's the aha that I've had as it relates to the world that you and I live in. Are we now at a point where Silicon Valley is no longer a place, but an idea? And if that's, if Silicon Valley is not a place, but an idea, how do we construct this the quote unquote Silicon Valley company of the future?
1: Well, I think there's two different big concepts in what you just said. So, uh, one concept is, regardless of geography, are we going to be looking at a shrinking workforce uh, in the knowledge side? Um, and, and we can question the degree, but I think the, the obvious answer is yes. Um, and unfortunately, I think it extends well outside of that. I, you know, AI is something we didn't really touch upon, but uh, AI is here today. And AI is likely going to take out a similar, more significant chunk of uh, another part of the workforce. So, we're headed for, I think, Pretty significant structural correction that that needs to occur out there, and that's a whole separate conversation. Now, the other topic you touched on is location and geography. Um, This transition of Silicon Valley from a a place to a concept, I think, is already happening and already happened to some extent. Uh, I think that you know companies have never been more distributed than they are right now. You know, ten years ago, if you were a venture capitalist and you were looking at a hot company somewhere that existed outside of Silicon Valley, and certainly if you were a top ten firm, your answer would be. We'll invest, and you're going to move here in Silicon Valley, and we're going to build a company here, Facebook being a, a great example of that, right? You know, that's not happening anymore. I think companies are, are more likely to get backed and grown uh, wherever they exist or wherever they came from. Uh, and increasingly, you know, Twitter, uh, Jack, the firm is famously announcing both Twitter and Square, no longer you have to be at the office. Um, I, heard of one, I, I heard of one company that's doing about $180 million in of revenue, uh, growing 100% a year, based in San Francisco, uh, their office lease. This is a company with 180 million. Their office lease in San Francisco came up for renewal in the middle of COVID, and they said, "Yeah, we're not going to renew the office space." And they uh, expect half of their workers to relocate outside the Bay Area. And someday they'll have another smaller office uh, in San Francisco. You used to not invest in a company if the workforce was distributed. Um, that was a red flag. Um, and today, I think it's it's the it's the new normal. So I, I think we're already you know halfway through uh, that transition. Um, and that's not to say that Silicon Valley goes away as, as, as a mecca or a really important place. Um, it remains so, but it is no longer automatic that everything that should be based here or scaled from here. And, and I think that trend was already in motion and, and no doubt is significantly accelerated because of
0: COVID. It's so fascinating. Uh, it's exciting and... Um... Um, who was it who said, may you live in interesting times? Was, that, was it Churchill or maybe it was Yogi Berra? <laughs> yeah,
1: I think it's erroneously attributed as a uh, Chinese proverb that it's a curse to live in oh, interesting okay. times. Um, but I think the uh, uh, history of that is uh, in dispute. So not sure where it came from, but it's a great saying.
0: Anything else you want to touch on, Matthew? Uh, no, uh, it's been a terrific conversation and i really honored and privileged to be here. Thank you. Thanks, brother. I sure hope you come back. This has been a fantastic conversation and uh, stay legendary. Thank you, Christopher. Bye. Well, there he is, the legendary Matthew Cowan. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, I want you to know we deeply appreciate when you share this podcast with your friends. Make no mistake. You have made us a top podcast by sharing. So uh, thank you so much. Now, America is clearly getting back to work. And to win in this crazy new environment, you need every advantage possible. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. Uh, NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system, featuring a full suite of capabilities from finance, HR, inventory, and multi-channel e-commerce. And with NetSuite, you can manage every penny with precision. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite will give you the visibility and control that you need to make it through this crazy time and hopefully succeed even stronger on the back end. Uh, The folks at NetSuite have put together a new guide called The 7 Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. Visit netsuite.com slash different to pick up your free guide and schedule your free product tour of NetSuite. That's netsuite.com slash different. And uh, my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. And their conference is the premier education event for thousands of IT, security, and business professionals who care about bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. And if we've seen one thing this year, we've seen the delta between businesses and government agencies who have been digitally transformed and those who have not been. And uh, if there was ever a time to get digital, it's now. So why not check out Splunk's annual conference? Join us for two days of innovation featuring today's thought leaders, top Splunk partners, Splunk CEO, Doug Merritt, Splunk CTO, Tim Tully, and many others, dozens of educational sessions. So get empowered to do amazing things with data. Visit conf.splunk.com today. That's conf.splunk.com today. All right. We would like to thank my good buddy, Matthew Cowan. It's great to catch up with you, Matthew. Thank you so much. You can find him on the internet, the internet. <laughs> Where the hell's the internet? I've been looking all these years for the internet, and I can't seem to find it. The interweb, the internet at next 47.com. That's next 47.com. While you're on the internet, visit my friends at the number one LifeFullyLive.org This is an extraordinary nonprofit Helping people dream, plan And live their best life And I've been supporting One Life Fully Live Financially since they started And I wrote the biggest check I've ever written To them this year because they make a difference Particularly to underserved communities Check them out My friends at Bottleneck.online Are uh, helping you with the world's first Dedicated distant assistant Check them out And if you're in the B2B space in Silicon Valley, my friends at Atranet will build you a legendary B2B website that will help you conquer your category. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. That's Atranet. And if you're in a position to make a difference, to make a charitable donation to anybody helping out with these fires, to any of the food banks that are helping out with COVID, uh, faith-based organizations... 2020, for many of us, has been the toughest economic year of our lives. So if you're in a position to make a difference, why not crack open your wallet and put it somewhere good? All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain disturbed. We must warn you that clearly the creators of this podcast are consuming libations and lubations. <laughs> we are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top five. Uh, our website, lockhead.com, and other technical awesomeness around here is done by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. In the event of a global recession, do legendary marketing. Listen to Tom Waits. For the love of God, get out of the passing lane. Stop the burning in California. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay healthy, stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.